are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, if you're a new listener, this is where we talk about what's going on in the economy. We go back and look at different times historically that the economy has looked the way it does presently. And we attempt to connect the dots to tell you what it means for you and your dreams of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. Now, that said, I do have available a July special report. Uh, Long-time listeners will know that each month we do publish a special report. Uh, The July report is titled, Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. Financial markets are behaving the way I suggested they might uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, Stocks have had another rough week this past week. And this report will investigate the mistakes and myths that I believe many people make in a market environment like this. Now, if you'd like to get your copy of this report, again, titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them, all you need to do is visit the website, request your report, Com. When you go to that website, let us know where to mail the report. You'll get the report as well as some bonus information. So again, the July special report, Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them, is available by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. You know, I have made the case that uh, the, the, the massive levels of quantitative easing, let me put that in terms that everybody will understand, The massive levels of currency creation in which the Fed has been engaging has created an artificial economy. Now, Ben Hunt on Twitter uh, on July the 6th, just a couple days after the holiday, posted some very interesting data that really confirms, in my mind, that we are now in an artificial economy. We are now experiencing what I would call an everything bubble. Now, Ben published data showing U.S. GDP, or gross domestic product growth, from 1951 to 2021, and at the same time compared it with wealth growth. Now, let me put this into a context relating to your household finances. Your GDP is your household income. Your wealth growth is the rate at which your 401k and IRA might be growing. Now, in order for your wealth to grow legitimately, in order for your wealth to grow consistently, you have to save more money. And to do that, you need to have more income. So it stands to reason that As far as your household goes, in order for your wealth to grow, your income needs to grow as well, and you need to save some of that income. Well, that principle is really true on a national basis as well. Gross domestic product is the income of the United States, and when you compare GDP with wealth growth from 1951 to 1986, you see that those two bits of data were in line with each other. In other words, wealth grew commensurate with income. As income grew, wealth grew. Then, starting in the 1990s, as Mr. Hunt points out, the Fed began to use monetary policy as a political tool. What does that mean? Well, 
It was designed to put a lot of money into the economy and make us seem richer than we, we really were, to, to, to make the economy seem like it was growing when it really wasn't. And if you take a look from the 1990s, about the time that the tech stock bubble started to inflate, many of you are old enough to remember that, you see that wealth growth has grown exponentially faster than GDP. Wealth growth has grown much faster than income. Now, how is that possible? Well, the answer is it is not possible long term. It is not sustainable. We saw home prices and financial asset prices inflate at a much faster rate than income. And it just can't do that long term. And now I believe what we're beginning to see is this bubble beginning to unwind. And I certainly think that there is more pain ahead. Now, if you go back and take a look at the stats and you take a look at where the economy is now and you compare that to where the economy was at the time of the Great Depression, you find some very, very interesting parallels. When measured as a percentage of the economy, private sector debt today is on par with or about the same as it was at the onset of the Great Depression. There's about $2.40 in debt in the private sector for every dollar the economy is producing. So that particular data point looks now almost exactly like it looked in 1929, but there is one very important disparity here. There's one important difference, and that is the level of U.S. government debt that exists. U.S. government debt is far more out of control today than it was in the late 1920s. In 1929, U.S. government debt was about 16% of the economy. Today, U.S. government debt is about 130% of the economy. To make a long story short, in 1929, the federal government wasn't broke. So that means the outcome that we may see today might be worse than it was in the 1930s. And if you're just joining me, it's for that reason that I'm offering the July special report, Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them, all you need to do to get your copy of the report is visit the website, requestyourreport.com, and I'll be very glad to send a copy out to you. Now, a former guest here on this program, Ron Paul, who was also a former presidential candidate, had this to say during an interview on American Agenda almost two weeks ago. During the interview, Dr. Paul warned that the country was worse off now than it had been at some of the most challenging economic times in its history, including the Great Depression of the 1930s. Dr. Paul said the cause of this is the policy of inflating the currency supply. Dr. Paul said this, and I quote, The founders understood exactly what we're talking about. They had the runaway inflation with the continental dollars, so they put in the Constitution that only gold and silver could be legal tender. And yes, that is in the Constitution. Paul said if we had followed that, we wouldn't have had 
the welfare warfare state with these huge deficits. And what we're facing, because I think what we're facing today is a lot worse than what we've had in the past, whether it was the depression or whether it was the downturns we've had in recent years. Paul said, I think the bubble is bigger. I think the debt is bigger. The demands are bigger, and the people are way overconfident, even though they're getting worried. Way overconfident that you can take your debt at $10 trillion and in a few years switch it to $30 trillion and nothing changes. I would argue, however, things are now changing and changing quickly. Debt is a drag on the economy. That is now becoming very apparent. One of my favorite commentators on this topic, a gentleman by the name of Matthew Piepenberg, wrote a piece on this last week. He said this, What the U.S. in particular and the West in general are failing to confess is that today's so-called developed economies are, in actual fact, more like yesterday's debt-straddled emerging market economies and like a real banana republic, the only option ahead for our clueless elites is inflationary. Now, I have commented that I believe the Fed is in a very difficult position here. Option number one that the Fed has is to continue tightening, continue raising interest rates, continue to slow the rate of currency creation in order to attempt to get inflation under control. That will lead to a collapse in financial asset prices, and we are seeing, I believe, the beginning of that now. Stocks are down significantly year-to-date. I expect that there is more downside here, although it's important to remember markets never go straight up or straight down. We talk about that in the July special report. If you're just joining me, you can get a copy of that report by visiting requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy of the report titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. But the other option the Fed has is to reverse course and say the economy needs support, and they begin this whole process of quantitative easing or currency creation again. I believe, ultimately, that's where the Fed will likely go. Now, my guest on today's program, Mr. Carl Denninger, disagrees with me, and I'm going to get his take on this as well, and he has got some interesting perspective to offer you there as well. But I think that we all can agree there's two options here, Both are bad options. Piepenberg puts it this way. He said, I've often cryptically joked that listening to investors, mainstream financial pundits, or downstream politicians debating about near-term asset class direction is like listening to first-class passengers on the Titanic debating about the dessert choices on the menu rather than the debt iceberg off their bow. The real issues are right in front of us, and yet many are ignoring them. So to that end, I'd like to I invite you once again to get the special report for July. Visit requestyourreport.com. We'll be glad to send it out to you. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. My guest once again on today's program, back by popular demand, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. And uh, on the landing page on the right-hand side, there is a link uh, labeled Click for What the Media Does Not Want Published. Uh, I'd encourage you to check that that out as well. And, Carl, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So, Carl, before we actually started recording today's conversation, uh, we were talking a bit about uh, a topic that really is on everybody's minds if you're putting fuel in your car, and that is energy. Um, And and we were chatting a bit about, uh, you know, the news story that broke, um, or or has been breaking, I should say, that uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is at its lowest level since the uh, mid-'80s, as I recall. And uh, there's actually uh, uh, oil being sold now overseas, despite uh, the the, the high prices here at home. Can you comment? Well, sure. Uh, There's so there's a lot of there's there's some interesting stuff that's come out on that. There was an article recently that essentially uh, made the claim, the assertion that the SPR, uh, but by the and what Biden has authorized will be depleted. Um, it turns out their math was wrong, so it's not quite true. <laughs> um, and it, shortage of disinformation, yeah. Well, I don't think that was intentional. That was that was just uh, you know somebody got the math wrong, and I and I cited it, and then I went back and and uh, actually did a a strikeout on the original article and and updated it and left the edit where it was visible for anybody that wants to see it because that sort of a mistake is I mean that's an error. That's not somebody trying to play a game with someone. And, uh, you know, that should when, when that kind of a mistake gets made anywhere in the media, it should it should be not only corrected, but it should be, you know, the, the, the correction should be left where it's easily visible. It shouldn't be relegated to page six somewhere. Uh, but the the big issue here is really that uh, we're seeing this on a global basis with Germany and uh, and of course, the stuff that's going on between Ukraine and Russia is that and the United States is part of it is this move towards supposedly renewable green energy sources. Uh, The first problem is they're not actually green. Um, And I, and I could, I could spend two hours or three hours going through the, all the stuff with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and global, you know, global climate change or whatever have you, but I'll stay away from it simply because I don't want to get deflected off the point. And that is that no matter how you slice it, these, these renewable energy sources are unreliable. And that's that's just simply because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And there's not anything you can do about that. That's outside your area of control. So if if you are going to be doing things um, that that essentially force your economy into using those energy sources, the only way to avoid shortages at the worst possible time is to ridiculously overbuild capacity, which of course is very expensive because now you're you know ninety percent of the time ninety five percent of the time you don't need that right so you you need a hundred windmills you have to put up three hundred uh, because if there's almost no wind uh you you know you get almost no energy out of a individual windmill, so you have to have many many more than you otherwise would and and yet uh, most of the time those other two hundred just sit there and don't do anything useful. They have to be feathered because you don't have the demand to actually absorb what they can produce. Uh, That drives the cost up. The other possible way to handle it is to have fossil fuel 
backups or nuclear backups, which are both reliable because they're not dependent upon you know what the weather is doing at a given point in time, that can be brought online rapidly. And unfortunately, both nuclear and large coal plants cannot do that because there is a lot of thermal inertia. If you think about the size of a nuclear plant, it's absolutely enormous, of course. And, and in order for it to materially change its output, all of that thermal mass has to come up to the new power level, the new temperature. And same thing's true with coal. Uh, the large coal-fired plants, the same, same basic problem. And so we have historically used those as base load. In other words, the, the amount of electrical demand that is always there. And then dispatch... Uh, what are called peaking plants, which today are largely powered by natural gas. Uh, and, and those are used to cover the, the peak loads that show up at certain times. So when it's 110 degrees out, and there's no wind. You have no windmills, but you can, you can very rapidly start up and bring up to power a natural gas-fired turbine and produce, and, you know, produce electricity with that. Well, if you declare war on these fossil fuel bases, base energy sources, then essentially what you've done is you've taken away that stable base of power generation. And now, uh, you know, we just had it happen here uh, recently here down in Texas, where again, they had very, very hot weather, high pressure systems sat over the top of the state. It happens. There's nothing you can do about it. It's 110 degrees out, but there's no wind. <laughs> so, you know, so now, uh, well, gee, you know, we'd love if we'd had these coal plants that were still operating or these nuclear plants that were still operating, this wouldn't have been a huge problem because the available natural gas peaking energy sources would have been sufficient to cover it. But all of a sudden, oops, it's not. And so now we're telling people, hey, you know, uh, don't turn that air conditioner on because if you do and enough people do it, we're going to end up in a situation where we have to black people out because we just don't have the supply. So. Carl, given that, as you say, green energy is not actually that reliable and we'll stay away from that, it's not actually that green, which is another conversation, um, what, is, uh, what is the political motivation for pushing so hard for uh, green energy? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a great deal of just flat-out falsehood that's peddled with regards to the you know, everything related to this. Right? Um, it even goes so far as the the supposed ranges that are available with electric vehicles. They're nonsense. They're, they're synthetic calculated ranges. And if you remember, there was a there, there fear about this with gasoline power cars several times over the years where some, you know, some company has gotten caught cheating on the test cycles, um, either on an emissions basis, like what you know, happened with Volkswagen, or in some cases on the fuel economy. And in fact, a, a number of years ago, the EPA revised their drive cycle testing for this with the window stickers that are on all cars because nobody was getting anywhere close to what was on those stickers. <laughs> okay, They were just pure garbage. Well, the same thing's true with EVs. And the, the test cycle is a synthetic cycle that does not meet reality um, against, you know, against facts. And there was there was a recent test that was run. It's on it's on YouTube. Uh, you can find it. Uh, a couple of guys that took one of Ford's Lightning 1500 trucks, uh, the electric one, and a brand new Chevy gas powered truck, and put two identical trailers behind them, and then started down from Longmont, Colorado, down towards Colorado Springs. 
And the expectation was that they'd lose about half the mileage that they could get off the truck and they'd be able to get to Colorado Springs where there are fast charge and everything else. Well, they didn't. They got 75 miles and nearly ran out of power in the, the electric truck. Uh, and, and essentially, at, at the point they got to about 60, uh, they, they realized there was no way they were going to make that charging station. It was not even close. They were, they were going to be you know, 30 or 40 miles short. And so they turned around and came back on the side road, on the access road, to, because windage is obviously a big thing, wind resistance. Uh, and they made it the, charge, the closest charging station, but if they kept going, they would have run out of power. Uh, what I found most amusing about that was was not just what it said about the, uh, you know, actually trying to use a truck as a truck and that it doesn't work. So basically, if you buy one of these things, you can't use it as a truck. Um, but the other interesting aspect of it is that I have a 2002 half ton SUV in my driveway and I just got done driving across the country with a trailer of almost identical specification in terms of size, uh, weight and everything else what these guys were testing with and and i got approximately 10 miles per gallon with that trailer and and this was over the space of three thousand okay so this is you know it's pretty good uh, pretty good test in terms of actually you know being able to look at the fuel receipts the interesting thing is this this brand new 2022 uh chevy that is again half ton truck trailer of ex- almost exactly the same uh specifications uh, got the full economy. Now it's been 20 years. Okay, that's 20 years old. And so all this innovation, all this technology, all this, you know, better engines, better gearboxes, more gears, you know, this, that, there, better emissions. Da, 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 da. At the end of the day, it still gets 10 miles a gallon with the trailer on the back. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not much has changed. Um, well, nothing's, nothing's changed. So why would I buy the new one? What's right? As long as the old one's in perfectly good mechanical condition, why would I buy the new one? I'm not going to get any benefit from it. Right. So, Carl, in the time we have left, which is just a few minutes here, uh, do you have a forecast uh, for fuel prices? I think our uh, our listeners would be interested in your opinion. Well, we're getting demand destruction. Uh, it's already showing up. It's uh, I'm seeing it in a number of different areas. And demand destruction is just very simple. It's it's called recession. It's called high prices are the cure to high prices because people don't buy as much. Uh, it's already happening. And uh, you're already seeing that start to turn. So, uh, but the, in terms of going back to somewhere reasonably close to where it was a couple of years ago, um, we are in for a environment that is not going to materially change for a very long time. And the reason is that nobody in their right mind is going to make the investments necessary to expand our energy infrastructure and, ma- and just maintain it, just do ordinary maintenance. If at any time, with the wave of a pen and a phone call, the executive, whoever it is, whether it's Democrat or Republican, can destroy that investment. Now, we we have a process we're supposed to follow to do this, and that is that these things get debated in Congress, and we have representatives. And, things like, and, and there's a reason this is that it's supposed to be hard to do this, and you have both the House and the Senate that must concur. Um, we have, over the last 10 years or so, we spent an awful lot of time doing it, doing it all through executive policy, which is wildly illegal. It's been ruled illegal twice, specifically with regards to carbon dioxide at the Supreme Court, and yet it is still going on. And until it stops, you're not going to see a solution to this problem. Well, my guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. I'll continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting on today's program once again with returning guest Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator. I would encourage you to check out his work at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, uh, Carl, in the last segment, uh, you alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, one of the best cures for high energy prices is lack of demand or perhaps recession. Um, it's been my contention that since the first of the year we have been in recession, uh, and it seems now that some of the numbers coming out may, may confirm that. What's your view? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the amusing part of recessions is that the NBER, uh, which is the, you know, the, the non-governmental agency of businesses that, uh, you know, that officially declares them when they start in the end, uh, is always six months or a year behind. <laughs> and, and they retroactively declare them because the data is a little bit behind. Okay. And yet the St. Louis Fed, along with others, uh, track economic activity in real time. So you can look at that and you, you could see that, uh, you know, the official, the official benchmark is supposedly two, two quarters of economic contraction. And the uh, the second quarter numbers have been tracking negative for the last three or four months. So I, I mean, you know, the first quarter was. So there there's a recession, right? And you know, starting the the top essentially was uh, was right at the beginning of the year. The a, a lot of people are are getting very happy face about this because the last couple of times that we've had this kind of thing happen, uh, which you know was 2000 and then 2008, uh, it was it was V-shaped and very sharp. I think people should be very careful because the those were bubble based within a specific sector of the economy. This is this is a cost push inflationary and energy driven recession. And those those are kind of rare. We don't have a whole lot of them. But the closest analog that you can look at is from the late 1970s and early 80s. And that went on for about four years. So, Carl, the markets, obviously, uh, the stock markets have been reacting negatively uh, year to date. Uh, let's start with stocks and move on, move on maybe to your take on housing. But it uh, seems like the markets have, have paused here a bit. Uh, but when you look at valuation levels, they're still up there. Does that mean there's more downside ahead? Oh, I think there's a lot more downside ahead. I mean, the, it, you know, the, the question is always, when you start looking at, for example, valuations, usually it's, it's calculated on price earnings ratio, right? The question is always, what are the earnings? <laughs> okay, when you go into a recessionary environment, it's not what's the price; it's what are the earnings. And over the last thirty years, the the earnings that have been reported, and and they're real by the accounting standards, right, have been goosed by this ever declining interest rate environment. That's over; it's never coming back. And then on top of that, the ability to sequester inflation through foreign trade has been destroyed by the war between Ukraine and Russia and the sanctions activity that have been undertaken by Western governments. That's never coming back. So any credit emission that goes on, any deficit spending that goes on within the federal government, I don't care whether it's here or anywhere else, uh, immediately reflects back into inflation. And that means that we have to have positive real interest rates to control it. We are a long way away from positive real interest rates. They would have to be at about 6 or 7% right now in order to achieve that, to have a positive uh, cost across that. Um, obviously, we're nowhere near 6 or 7% today. So, Carl, it's been my take also that the Fed will likely at a certain point 
reverse course and uh, and and continue uh, with with easy money uh, simply because they'll probably say that the economy needs the support. Uh, do you think they'll do that? And uh, you know, if yes or no, why? I don't think they can do it. And if they do do it, uh, I would be very concerned about the possibility of extremely serious. Uh, repercussions within the American economy and and civil system, including the possibility for civil unrest or worse. So you think that uh, short of them doing that, that we are headed for uh, probably the mother of all recessions, to use that term. I mean, when you look at uh, debt levels that exist in the private sector, we're we're rivaling, uh, you know, the Great Depression when when measured as a percentage of the economy. And you know, the government wasn't broke in 1929, so that that doesn't bode well for what lies ahead. No, I think you could be seeing a. In my my base case scenario is something that looks like the you know late 70s, early 80s, where you have a four or five year uh, period of time before a reasonable level of economic stability is reestablished. If the Fed attempts to back off, you could get a 1930s scenario quite easily. So talk about real estate. It seems that there's starting to be some some crack showing in the real estate market. Uh, is the real estate market ready to uh, follow the, the trajectory that stocks now find themselves on? Real estate, ultimately, there's well, there's two components of it. The first one is residential, which is what everybody you know thinks of when they think of real estate. Uh, residential real estate has to be priced at such a level that the average person can buy the average house and raise an average family in it on the wages that are available within that particular area. So it's very local. Um, it's, it is nowhere near that, essentially, anywhere in the United States right now. There, uh, places like this area are at least 50% overvalued, at least. And in many places, it's worse than that. Um, in those parts of the country that have been driven by the technology, you know, scream fest with social media and stuff like that, uh, I, I think the overvaluations are probably a factor of, of 70 or 80%. And I don't know how much of that air is going to come out, but it, either wages have to go up substantially, and you can't do that when you can't make a profit in a high interest rate environment, or prices have to come down. Those are the only two possibilities. Uh, on the commercial side, it's potentially even worse because uh, high energy costs, uh, you know, every single thing that you buy, I don't care where you get it from. I just had to go buy a, a, a piece for a car at, a, at an auto parts store. That, that got to the store by truck. And, and until the cost of fuel to run that truck comes down, you're not going to see the cost structure within the, the shipment of goods. And therefore, every piece of commercial real estate that depends on that is, is absolutely overpriced. And, and where that stabilizes at this point, I don't know. So, Carl, let's talk a bit about, um, you, you mentioned wages have to go up to compensate for these higher prices. Comment a bit on the current state of the labor market. Um, tr truly, uh, truly something we've never seen before. Yeah, and there's some there's some very interesting things in the internals of that data, the BLS. And I, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I always I always have trouble trusting just small samples, uh, especially when there's political interference. And there uh, there's absolutely has been in the past. We know this factually. 
It's not an unbiased source by any stretch of the imagination. But on the other hand, there's only so much of that that you can do before you have to correct it. Okay, <laughs> and then and, and then when you correct it, people go, oh, wait, where'd that come from? Um, and so there's plenty of that sort of stuff that's going on in there. But one of the things that I found most interesting was that last month, uh, a huge percentage of of the people that are not in the labor force, uh, about six seven hundred thousand people, came back into the labor force from not in, from the not in labor force numbers. But almost none of them, uh, six out of seven, did not find a job. Okay, so what you have is now you have people coming into the into the workforce that were sitting on the sidelines voluntarily or otherwise, and yet they did not find employment. And then inside the tables was a a precipitous drop in the number of college grads that are in the workforce. It was about 700,000 that just disappeared. Now, once you, you you can't lose educational attainment, okay? So normally what happens is migration. You you don't have a high school diploma, you graduate high school, you then go from one bucket to the other. But once you get to bachelor's degree or above, there's you can't lose a bachelor's degree. So the only way to leave that bucket is to either stop working entirely or to die or end up in well, you could end up in a prison or, or, you know, or a nursing home. That's that also takes you out of the, the uh, workforce. But short of that, you don't leave that that data set. And and yet 700,000 people last month did supposedly leave that data set. Now, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the demographic shift over time of, you know, the boomers retiring, things like this. But the idea that, you know, 8 million people on an annualized basis did, did this last month. Uh, no, no, that's that's not the explanation. So this may be this may be something else. This may be the leading edge of some really serious high level cutbacks within American industry. It could be the effects of certain other things that, uh, you know, that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, or it could be a data error, but it's something that I'm going to watch very carefully over the next few months. Well, certainly when you have uh, an extreme with, with employers looking for employees and, and seemingly no uh, employees to be found, I mean, that's an extreme situation. So it seems that, you know, that would have to correct itself. Uh, could, could this just be an extreme correction that, that, that now we're going the other way? Well, it could. I, you know, the the thing that that I've noted, though, over the last 20 years or so is that we've had a barbell economy. Okay, so the people with no high school diplomas, and and they have jobs. Uh, the people with bachelors and above have jobs, and and the trends have both been positive, and the ones in the middle have been less so, or have or have been outright negative. Uh, and so that's and that's been a pattern that has followed with the shift that we've had with a lot of our blue collar labor overseas, and it's not a new thing. It's been going on for two decades. Um, that's one of the reasons it's the probably second or third thing I look at in that report every first Friday when it comes out. And this is a change. Now, whether or not this is, you know, a durable change, I mean, uh, last year there was a, a apparent uh, loss of, of non-institutional population in terms of the, the acceleration that has been going on for the last two decades suddenly stopped and reversed. That ended up being revised out in in this last January. So it, that you see something in the data doesn't necessarily mean it's real. 
Um, but it's something that sends up red flags, especially when you have recessionary winds blowing to begin with. And then all of a sudden you've got this coming. You have, uh, uh, you know, the rumors of uh, Zuckerberg over at, uh, at Meta, you know, Facebook, saying out a memo basically saying, I'm going to find all the dead wood in the, in the, in the company and I'm going to cut it. Um, well, how much of that's already going on? Well, my, the clock says, Carl, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would also encourage you to check out the link on the first page labeled. Click for what the media does not want published. There's some uh, terrific content there as well. Carl, I always have great feedback whenever you're on the program, and uh, appreciate you joining us today, and I would love to have you back down the road. No, anytime. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. You know, if you're not taking advantage of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website, you should be. The web address is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. When you visit the website, you will find the podcast version of this radio program posted there. You'll also be able to get access to the weekly headline roundup webinar that I do every Monday at noon live uh, that is recorded and posted on the website. Uh, You'll also get access to the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter that we publish. That is all free. It's all available at the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. If you're just tuning in, the July special report is titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. You can get your copy of this free report by visiting requestyourreport.com and letting us know where you would like your report mailed. And when you request that report, you will also be getting uh, a lot of bonus information that we believe you will find to be very timely. So again, that is at requestyourreport.com. Now, we've been talking on today's program about the economy and about where the economy and the investing markets are likely to go from here. I've often said here on the program that many people have what I would consider to be a distorted view of how currency works. Many would say that currency, many would say money, the green stuff in your purse or wallet is an asset, but the reality is In today's world, since 1971, all currency has either been loaned into existence or created by the Federal Reserve, and currency is debt. As currency has been created, here is one cold hard fact you should never forget. Global debt levels, national debt levels are rising to levels where they can never be repaid. Now, interestingly, as I have talked about here over the last couple of weeks on the program, I believe that the U.S. economy is now in recession. I think the data is showing that. And something that really hasn't been discussed too much is that national income from GDP, from gross domestic product, falls during a recession. But when you take a look at tax receipts, 
taxes that the government collects, tax receipts are falling as well. That creates a situation that's even more unsustainable than it was when the economy was growing modestly. We have the national debt that is still growing, and we have tax receipts that are falling. And they're not even falling by a little bit. They're falling a lot. Year over year, U.S. tax receipts have now fallen 16%. That's one-sixth. That's 16% year over year. And they're likely going to fall even further as markets continue their trend south. And the U.S. is now going into what I believe is going to be a deeper recession than we are already experiencing. Federal deficits are rising, and there are no foreign entities standing in line to loan the U.S. government money to subsidize its reckless spending. China's interest in U.S. Treasuries has now hit a 12-year low. Japan is too broke to afford bailing out Uncle Sam as well. So what does this mean for stocks? Well, John Hussman this past week published what I thought was a very telling chart using a price-to-sales ratio to show where the market is currently valued. Now, a price-to-sales ratio takes the price of the stock uh, divided by the sales to come up with a ratio. And we now, after the most recent decline this year in stocks, have a price-to-sales ratio near where these declines began at the time of the tech stock bubble. Elliott Wave measures sentiment. Now, one thing to think about when you think about sentiment is that the crowd is almost always wrong. Elliott Wave wrote an article titled How to Prepare for a Hard-Hitting Bear Market. And they talked about the fact that the level of bullishness now in the market is higher than it was at the top of the dot-com mania. Now, Bob Stokes wrote the piece for Elliott Wave, and he said this, an important step in preparing for an historic bear market is to embrace cash or cash equivalents. This may seem obvious, but even with a stock market in a downtrend, cash has been shunned by many an investor, both retail and professional. Many of these investors believe the bull market will resume, and it will resume sooner rather than later. Now, in the May Elliott Wave Theorist, which is a monthly publication that Elliott Wave puts out, they noted the percentage of assets dedicated to stocks in the American Association of Individual Investors members' portfolios remains near a bullish extreme. That tells you that individual investors are viewing this as a market correction versus a full-fledged bear market. And in confirming what uh, Mr. Hussman said, that valuations now are where they were when the tech stock decline started. If you take a look at U.S. households and the percentage of their holdings that are in stocks, at the tech stock bubble, it was 26.3%. Now, even after the market decline, it's 27.5%. So American households now own 
more stocks than at the tech stock bubble peak. That tells you that there's likely more downside here, given that the crowd is almost always wrong. Now, if you have a portfolio that has some safe money in it, and that's the premise of the revenue sourcing planning strategy, and if you do request the report for July, you'll get some information on how to use revenue sourcing in your portfolio. And again, if you're just joining me, the July special report is titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. I'll be glad to send you that report, as well as some information on the revenue sourcing planning strategy. All you need to do is go to the website, requestyourreport.com, and we'll send you everything. But Elliot Wave said this, and it really confirms the revenue sourcing approach. Quote, the point is this. If you have a portfolio of mainly cash, you'll be in the minority, which history shows is usually the best place to be when a market is transitioning from a bear to bull or bull to bear market. So again, the report is available by going to the website, requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.